out of Oklahoma City. You're listening to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where movies are more than just 90 minutes in a bucket of popcorn. The Good Trash Genre Cast is a member of the Good Trash Media Network. For more information, go to goodtrashmedia.com. Not so long ago, in the mysterious land of Oklahoma City, Arthur, Dalton, Caleb, Alex, and Dustin were recording a podcast. Hello everybody and welcome again to the Good Trash Owner Cast, where a bunch of people gather around a table and we talk about the films you'll never discuss in a film today's course. Uh, this week's film may or may not be an exception uh, for various reasons that we will discuss further, but the film in question is a period drama entitled Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. It's about a Puritan young man as he's come off the Mayflower <laughs> and is uh, working to integrate himself in this uh, new world in which he has found himself. But- I believe that's Scott Pilgrim versus the New World, Dustin. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. Is it not Pocahontas? Are not all the pilgrims called Scott? I, I believe they were, yes. <laughs> that is that is a historical fact. You can look that up. All pilgrims were named Scott. I think so. Scott and Todd. But nonetheless, <laughs> we are uh, here to talk to you about Scott Pilgrim versus the World. We first need to identify the disembodied voices speaking to you all around the table. To my left, sir, who are you? I am Arthur Gordon, and yes, I'm awesome. I have my own skate company. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much. He was a pretty good skater. Now he's a pretty good actor. Yeah. And then he became a pretty good podcast producer. Do what I can. Uh, on around the table, sir, who are you? My name is Dalton Stewart, and I'm here to make you think about death and get sad and stuff. Excellent, excellent. Around, around in the corner, ma'am, who are you? My name's Alexander Bohannon, and... Fred makes you fat. <laughs> there was sound effects and everything. <laughs> she was ready with props. Oh, that's excellent. All right. All right. Uh, in the purple shirt, who are you, sir? Uh, my name's Caleb Masters. Alex, that was so funny with the, the bread and stuff. Oh, my God. It was so funny that you made me swallow my gum. It's going to be in my digestive tract for seven years. You're adorable. Yeah. You're a, cu- you're a cute boy. I think that myth was busted. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Caleb Masters. My name is Dustin Sells, and I've got to pee due to boredom. Moving right along, we are uh, talking Scott Pilgrim. I have to pee. So uh, we're talking Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Now, dear listener, we need to warn you, this is not a review show. It's an analysis show, and there will be spoilers. But we're going to give you a brief moratorium from said Spoiler Ridge. And that's going to happen after a synopsis from The Voice of Cinema, and then our quick thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews. And then we get down to business, and it's spoilers ahead from that point forward. You have been warned. Yet, and however, I must take a brief moment to pause in our normal spiel right now. And we have a special announcement that Mr. Caleb Masters and Miss Alexander Bohan and are going to tell you about right now. Yeah, uh, so we here at Good Trash Media are back with another live show. This is the first one we've done in a couple of years. We're going to be on the plaza in the parish here in Oklahoma City, for those of you who are familiar. Uh, you can uh, look forward to hanging out with us, seeing us talk, partner with the Planet Thunder gentlemen over there uh, to review their film, The Fable of Shannon Cable. Uh, to kind of, uh, we're going to do kind of our trademark analysis. We're going to talk with the filmmakers a little bit, and we're also just going to hang out and talk to you fools. Uh, Alex, do you have any more details about when and where people can do this? Sure. You can find us at the parish, the Plaza District in Oklahoma City, and that's going to be June 3rd from 7.30 to 11, I guess. We're going to first screen the film, The Fable of Shannon Cable, which is the first feature film uh, from Planet Thunder Productions. And then we're going to have our uh, live panel, uh, trademark analysis, and we're going to have a grand old time. So please come out, have drinks, uh, watch a great movie for free um, with us, and we'd love to see you there. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much for that. And thank you that you have now trademarked analysis. I'm glad that that is a trademark of the Good Trash Genre cast, and no one could do analysis without paying us a royalty. That's right. Just like the birthday guy. I'm sorry, did you say a trademark? I might have. I could have. (laughs) Trademarked. 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 I'm I'm, I'm, a firefighter. Fucking firefighters. (laughs) Pussy for the first time in the history of pussy or fire. So, Boys. All right, so we need to move on in our show, and it's now time for that synopsis from the voice of the cinema. Mr. Arthur Gordon, let's hear it. Scott Pilgrim must defeat his new girlfriend's seven evil exes in order to win her heart. Yep. 
Well, uh, yeah, that happens. It's very little of what the movie's kind of about, though. I mean, but okay. Thank you for that very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Uh, Mr. Caleb Masters, what do you say in terms of thumbs up, thumbs down review? Picker of the film. Picker of the film. This is all your fault. This is your very first host pick. Uh, Host pick. Second, if you count uh, the long ago before times when he picked uh, Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Way back. I wasn't officially a co-host at the time either. Are you going to leave again now? Well, now that you mention it, I just got a call last night. You're going going to Toronto? uh, Going to Toronto, exactly. (laughs) I've got a buddy named uh, G-Man up there. Uh, So, yeah, Scott Pilgrim uh, as a pick. This has been a film I've liked for a really, really long time. It's one of my absolute favorite films, uh, at least from the 2000s. Didn't say the best. I said one of my favorites. Uh, from the moment the 8-bit sound, universal sound logo pops up, I just I, it hits me, and I grin on my face the entire way through the film. The entire way. I, I'm like laughing at the jokes. I'm quoting along with the movie. This is a movie I really, truly, and dearly love. Uh, this is the, actually for the show. This is the first time I'd actually watched it in a good couple of years, though. So I'd kind of forgotten how much I liked it. Um, now, what I really appreciate about this film is, as I've grown older, my perspective has changed since I first saw the f- uh, film my sophomore year of college. Um, I I really feel like the themes resonate more with me now than they did even then. Uh, just this kind of like you know, young adulthood, uh, kind of uh, finding oneself, and you know, coming of age story for twenty somethings. Not really high schoolers as much as twenty somethings. Uh, and now. That aside, I think the video game spectacle, the soundtrack, and the visual, visuals all hold up super well. And, like, the soundtrack, guys, I could listen to this thing all day long, great every day, on repeat. I actually bought the soundtrack upon rewatching this film for the first time. Uh, but when you strip away all the flash and all the gimmicks there, I still think this is a movie that has great characters. It tells a really interesting and mostly accurate portrayal of what it's like to come of age as a millennial in the uh, 21st, uh, you know, as a millennial coming of age, growing into adulthood. I do have some issues, especially upon rewatch, I think the film in, in some ways is problematic in places. But, you know, sometimes when you love something, you love it for flaws and all. And, and that's the thing, especially this time I was like, man, there's, I have a real hang up with the ending of the film. Uh, but I still love it, despite the fact that yeah, I, I prob- there are things problematic about it. Man, I just love it. It hits all the hits all the, the spots for me, and it's it's just this is a movie I could probably legitimately watch and repeat every day and wouldn't be upset about it. Uh, but yeah, I mean that's that's about what my thoughts on the film. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Caleb Masters, Ms. Alexander Bohannon. What say you in terms of thumbs up, thumbs down review? I remember seeing this movie on opening night. I think we did the midnight premiere for this. Um, it was highly anticipated for me and my circle of friends. This came out in 2010. So let's see. I was... Did it come out in 10 so, Yeah, 2010 sophomore year. Oh, 10! Okay. Um, yeah, so whenever this film came out, I think... I, yeah, I was home for the summer. All It was my last summer um, at home with my parents and uh yeah it it really struck a chord with me all of my friends were reading scott pilgrim um they the sixth volume had just come out um in about that time so um they were on a big high from that and we saw it with probably the perfect nerd crowd you know the reactions were really good i say all this to say that um Whenever I rewatched this film for the show, um, I didn't quite get a lot of the same high that I did whenever I watched it for the first time in theaters with all of the uh, emotions uh, of people being like, oh my gosh, this movie was made for me, you know, and this is something I really love and enjoy and anticipate. Um, I still really like it, and I think a lot of it is uh, charming and funny. Um, I don't know if this is going to be something that I really come back to all that often. I think sometimes um, Caleb's problematic stuff, um, it doesn't really deter him too much from this film. And it kind of gets to me a little more and it makes it harder for me to enjoy uh, this movie. I think it does what it does well, but I don't know how much I will revisit it. So I'm kind of a meh yes kind of on this all right. Well, thank you very much for that, Miss Alexander Bohan. And Mr. Dalton Stewart, what do you say? Uh, I, I had similar experiences uh, as Caleb and Alex did. I mean, th- this movie, uh, 
was made for people in their early to mid twenties. I was in my early twenties when it came out, and I was a huge fan of it. Uh, I was I I know Dustin, you had just turned thirty or about to. Um, I, I'm a big fan of this movie. Uh, I like uh, Edgar Wright quite a bit, and uh, th- this only uh, shows why. Uh, he carries uh, a lot of the aesthetic he uh, cultivated on Spaced and in the first two parts of the Cornetto trilogy into this movie. Um, his quick editing style that makes everything uh, shot and uh, cut like it's a, a big-budget action sequence, uh, even if it's somebody uh, taking a pee-pee. So uh, I, I love Edgar Wright for all those reasons, His um, the stylization he brings to the more mundane aspects of life. Uh, but, but this film has such a great personality, Um you know, there were a lot of really interesting articles in this film first came out uh, about it being a potential game changer, and, and it didn't really have that big of an impact on, on cinema t- to this point. Uh, maybe it will in the coming years. Um, all around a really solid movie. Uh, I, I would Alex has got some points uh, uh, about uh, the problematization of this film in recent years. I, I would agree there are things that I didn't notice, you know, six years ago when I first saw this three or four times in theaters um yeah i know i was i was really into it oh man <clears throat> yeah I, I had actually no it's okay yeah, I, I, had, I i love the fervor i i, I read I wish I'd seen it that yeah many times I, in theaters. I read all the graphic novels in the lead up to it, its release and uh was really stoked because i was i was just excited about it because edgar right uh and then to kind of discover this pretty uh, intense fan base the comics had uh in the weeks leading up to the film so uh, i read those and, and really enjoyed it uh but alex is right there there are some things that you know looking back with fresher eyes because uh, I haven't seen this movie in years, and uh, yeah, there there's some issues with it, but I, I think uh, overall it's it's a very smart film. It's a very entertaining film. It's extremely funny. Uh, it is really well shot and and cut because Edgar Wright um, and the fight choreography is is both really uh, well put together and really funny. So uh, I, I can't say enough nice things about it. I, I think uh, top to bottom it works out very well. All right, thank you very much for that, Mister Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you say in terms of your thumbs up, thumbs down review? Uh, similar to Dalton, I went into this as a fan of Edgar Wright, not really any having any knowledge of the the source material. You had uh, seen itself. it prior to this viewing for the show, correct? Correct. Yes, okay. I watched it a few years ago, um, and I really I enjoy it a lot, uh, mostly because of the stuff Wright brings to the table. I think as a filmmaker, the editing, uh, just a lot of the jokes. Uh, I like a lot of the stuff, the references to the video games. You know, Le- Legend of Zelda, uh, which I grew up playing, Link to the Past, and to hear that music and those sound effects. Uh, uh, there's kind of a nostalgic thing I think it brings out uh, in me, and I enjoy that about it. I think there are some really great characters here, um, some fun characters. Uh, you know, uh, we got a great cast of up and comers, just a huge ensemble, uh, and they all play their parts really well. And so, for the most part, I, I like this movie. I do feel like something's lacking in it, and I'm not sure what it is. I can't put my finger on it. And so, I don't know where it happens in the film. But like a lot of Edgar Wright's other works, this is a movie that every time I watch it, I appreciate it more. And I, I just see so many things I didn't catch before. And I love those layers because I think it obviously increases the value of the uh, rewatch for a movie like this. Um, you know, I don't know that I'd put it up next to the rest of the Cornetto films, but I think it's uh, great in its own way. Excellent. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I also like the movie quite a bit. It's, it's a lot of fun, and it's really a perfect adaptation of a graphic novel to cinema. Um, just what it does with onomatopoeia, written on screen, mm-hmm. and what it does with other things, and also this uh, great integration of uh, of uh, the idea of uh, video games uh, with uh, regular cinema. And so all of that I find to be really interesting. It's a fun little love story. Uh, Michael Sarah is really funny, um, and everybody else is stellar. And so, I mean, yeah, there's nothing not to like. It's a lot of fun. It's definitely well worth your time, and I recommend it highly. So we are generally biased pro towards this film. Um, I look upon my watch, though, and I realize it's time to play our game. Time. This week's game is our favorite cinematic boss fights. That's right, favorite cinematic boss fights, brought to you by Scott Pilgrim v. The World. Scott Pilgrim v. The World. It's got seven cinematic boss fights. Well, six and a half. There you go. All right, so we're going to talk about that. I'm going to go to you first, Dalton. What are your favorite picks? Uh, well, the first one that immediately came to mind for me was from one of my very favorite films, and we've discussed it on the show because I you know, sometimes push my favorite films, uh, and that is The Matrix. Uh, it's the uh, subway showdown between Neo and Agent Smith. Uh, it's so great. Um, it is a culmination of uh, the entire film up to that point, uh, and I think that's what makes it a great cinematic boss battle is it, it is... 
um, you know, all about Neo's journey up to that point, uh, his realization that he could be the one, and even in this fight, isn't really sure of himself, uh, and through tenacity and, um, you know, sheer force of will, uh, uh, wins this fight that he has no reason to win. Uh, and it's so great. It's got these great visual cues uh, where they stand off uh, like in a Western and a newspaper blows by like a tumbleweed. And uh, it's it's a, one of my... And Yin Ping's fight choreography on that scene is so good. Uh, I love it to pieces. Um, and I think it's great because you've got... Uh, uh, the amazing Hugo Weaving uh, just hamming it up as uh, Agent Smith. And you've got Keanu Reeves doing the, the best he's ever done in this film. I mean, he this is his best performance, uh, I think, uh, just because he, he brings that everyman quality. His blank face works perfectly well in this film. Um, I, I, I love Keanu Reeves. I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I don't. I'm not saying he's a great actor. I'm saying but he's a good presence on screen, and that makes this scene uh, amazing. My other pick uh, is from one of my other favorite films, and that is James Cameron's Aliens. Um, it is the power loader fight with the alien queen uh, at the end of the film. Um, I recently uh, listened to our friends up in Toronto, Canada, the Faculty of Horror, discussing Alien and Aliens on their podcast. Um, and they had a really interesting discussion about the uh, get away from her, you bitch line that uh, was very fruitful and uh, wonderful. And I I love that line. I think it's great. I think it works perfectly. Uh Yes, in the larger, grander scheme of things, there are some problematic issues with uh, Ellen Ripley's peak uh, heroism being uh, the love for a small human lady child. Um, But in terms of the text of the film, it works perfectly in terms of the pacing of the storytelling. Um, And it's a great scene. Uh, She even gets a new power-up to fight the boss. I mean, it is a video gamey. Uh, boss fight as Hale, um, and it works great. Uh, it's it's so cool. The puppetry in that sequence is amazing, and you know, thirty years later, looks it's astonishing how good it looks. Uh, I mean, the puppetry of that power loader and the alien queen. Uh, it is a a very tactile, visceral fight that would be done in CGI now and would look very stupid. Uh, but using the the puppetry that they had at the time, it looks great and feels great on screen, and um, is a great culmination uh, to the rest of the film that followed or uh, preceded it. Excellent. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Caleb Masters, what are your selections? I've got several. Dalton took a couple of mine, so uh, we're good. I'll just I'll, I'll rapid-fire name these off because there's so many great boss fights uh, in cinematic history. So firstly, Fellowship of the Ring, you get to the end of uh, the, the what, what is it, the, the Mines of Moria. After spending what seemed li- at least seemed like you know 45 minutes to an hour in there, you finally get to the epic uh, you know, boss, the, the Balrog, and then have the, you, know, so you get to see Gandalf actually use his magic powers for like one of the only two or three times you ever see him use it in the series. Fucking lays the smack down. On that Balrog, you should shall not pass. It was it was fantastic. I, I really love that. It's one of my favorite moments from the entire series. Uh, moving on, though, on to some other really great genre stuff. Back in the original X-Men trilogy, there was a thing where Wolverine fought someone every movie. and uh, that, that was just what happened. That's Exactly. Naturally. Uh, and they always set up who it was going to be early in the film for him to fight that person at the end. And my favorite was Lady Deathstrike from X-Men 2. Far better than what he did in X-Men 3. And top, definitely topped the really cool Sa- uh, Sabretooth fight from X-Men 1. But The fight choreography that scene with Kelly Hugh is oh, just astonishing. Amazing. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, and I really like the way it ends. Uh, you know, because essentially they're two indestructible beings. So... He wins by using his brains for once. It's kind of cool. Um, that's my favorite from that bit. And lastly, uh, you know, you're either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become a villain. Anakin Skywalker in Star Wars Episode Three. You can hate those movies all you want. That is one sick ass fight. That's a really well. They, court, did, yeah. they did not speed that it fight up. Very well. They, they they actually did that at, at the speed you see it in the film. Lots of cool jumping around. Lots of cool set pieces. And uh, personally, I thought there was some emotional weight to it. A lot of people would disagree with that. Uh, no, I would agree with that. I, it's the best scene in that entire trilogy. I, exactly. And uh, I think it was well worth the fight. Uh, and it's one of those things that if you don't watch anything else, you could go watch that fight scene in the prequel trilogy, and that would be all you need. <laughs> and it's great. Uh, that's about, those are my, it'd be my picks, Dustin. All right, thank you very much for that, Mr. Caleb Masters. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what are your selections? Uh, yeah, I'm going to throw out a sub-boss battle uh, from Raiders of the Lost Ark when Indy takes on the Nazi mechanic. Yeah, dog. And uh, oh, meets stuff. his end via propeller, uh, which is just a really fun fight. And I thought you were going to say the Sardinian swordsman. I almost did, but I think the Nazi <laughs> yeah, mechanic has a little more weight to boss, it. Yeah. Yeah. Just a bit. Uh, but, I don't believe he's actually Sardinian. Uh, the other one I want to acknowledge is uh, Team USA, the Mighty Ducks, take on Iceland at the end of yes. Mighty Ducks 2. That's awesome. Uh, which is a lot of fun. We have the underdogs uh, having to come back to really, you know, we've seen them beat once, and they have to they have to overcome the odds again, and they've got their power up in the form of... Uh, uh, 
Keenan Thompson and the knuckle puck. You're goddamn knuckle right. Puck. And knuckle so uh, I think it's just a lot of fun. You know, it holds up better than the uh, the uh, boss battle between the Ducks and the uh, the varsity team uh, when they go to Eaton <laughs> Hall. And so those would be my choices, Dustin Sells. Thank you very much for those. Miss Alexander Bohannon, what are your selections? My selections for this game of cinematic boss battles, um, first of all, I have to, as a good uh, Harry Potter nerd is wont to do, talk about uh, Harry Potter, specifically Goblet of Fire, even though I despise that movie with all of my being. Um, it does have a very great ending fight scene when Voldemort comes back, Harry is in the graveyard dodging tombstones, and then, you know, you have, like, this big connector thing. Um, I actually owned, uh, even though... Uh, Chamber of Secrets and Goblet of Fire are my two least favorite Harry Potter books. Those were the only two video games I owned of those of the entire series. So whenever you get to this boss uh, boss battle for Voldemort, you hide behind tombstones and you have to like push in like rhythm combos to like keep the pressure on your uh, connection with Voldemort as he's ca- casting Avada Kedavra and then Harry is doing um, his spell. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, it translates to that game really well. Um, and so then is very, uh, boss battle-y. Um, my second selection would be Jaws. Jaws was also, um, good pick. Man. Um, that was I, one of mine. Yeah. Well done. Jaws was, obviously made into many many video games but it then it uh it has like the whole tropism of you don't see the big baddie to the end and then you get to it and then it just like shit hits the fan um i can imagine you know having to line up your uh you know target sites on trying to launch that um harpoon yeah no he straight yeah. up shoots him with a uh, a rifle he oh shoot, he shoots the oxygen tank yeah okay yeah you're thinking of uh or I know what you're talking about, though. Yeah, I for some reason I saw a harpoon in my head in Jaws, but you know, it's probably probably one of the sequels, probably right. Um, <laughs> but and then of course the the sequels, um, you know, the subsequent Jaws sequels do more boss battley things, um, especially since you know you can imagine playing this in an arcade and in insert coin to continue um, beating up sharks. So. I play that game. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Thank you very much for that, Miss Alexander Bohannon. I also want to say, um, um, you know, a shout out to Roy Scheider and versus Bruce the Shark uh, in Jaws. I think that's very, very fun and uh, one of my favorite moments. Smile, you son of a bitch. That's right. Well, it's, it's cut off by the gunshot, though, right? Um, I also want to uh, mention uh, just a particular fight. It's not a boss fight, but um, there, there is a bit in a uh, game of. Death? Is that the name of Adult? And I've already messed up. Game of Death is the name of it, okay, yes. The uh, Bruce Lee's final and incomplete feature film. Right, in which uh, Bruce Lee fights one Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and there's a giant Kareem-sized footprint on Bruce Lee's chest, and then they fight. Um, Kareem's got him beat a little on reach. Let's just say that. No doubt, man. <laughs> uh, so- Bruce Lee's filmography is full of great boss fights, though. Yeah, You got the dude with the claw and or the dragon in the Hall of Mirrors, which is one of my favorite things in the history of forever. Yeah, yeah it's, it's excellent, excellent stuff. Also, so keeping it in the Lee family, Brandon Lee versus Michael Wincott. Hell in yeah, the dog. It's, it's not really the best choreographed fight of all time. However, the emotional overrottedness, mm-hmm. uh, not overrotted, it's just rottedness. Um, I'm very rotted um, <laughs> as, I, as I watch that, my emotions that, that is. And it's, it's very, very fun, and I enjoy it very, very much. But lastly, uh, my favorite big boss fight um, is from Bloodsport. It's Jean-Claude Van Damme versus Bolo Young. Hell yes. Yeah, man, it's just absolutely fantastic. just makes me happy in crazy ways. Uh, does the, uh, you know, in great movie boss fight fashion, something he learned earlier in the film uh, saves him from getting his face smashed in, and it's uh, his uh, sensei teaching him how to fight blind. Which is an impossible skill, but nonetheless. We... <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> no, nope. one, no one can Game of Thrones <laughs> and Daredevil would lead me to believe otherwise. <laughs> yes, also false. Moving right along, though, those are our selections, dear listener. We'd love to hear what your favorite... <laughs> I'm, I'm miming fighting blind right now. <laughs> uh, favorite big boss fight scenes from cinema happen to be. We'd love to hear that via social media. We'll tell you more about that towards the end of the show, but I realize now it's time to get down to business. It's That's right, dear Lister, and that business is analysis. It's not part of it, but it's also very, very important. Uh, we're going to move right into that with Mr. Caleb Master, selector of the film. This is all your fault, so bring the thunder, sir. I'll bring the thunder. Thunder up. Okay. 
I actually don't watch the sports ball, but anyway, uh, yeah. So I was rewatching this film and and trying to think. I one reason I picked it outside of it being one of my favorite films is I always did feel like it's it's really ripe for some interesting readings. Uh, it, it, it's not like the type of stuff we typically read, even with genre stuff. Like I feel like it's presenting some very different kind of perspectives than we're used to watching. So, um, so I was really excited to have the chance to kind of uh, break the analysis on it. And I want to talk a little bit about how this film is uh, kind of kind of portraying the the millennial coming of age story for men. Because uh, obviously Scott Pilgrim, being a man, it's from his perspective. So uh, he is the main character, and it is about him uh, basically finding a woman. So that's kind of the heart of the story. But I want to set the scene a little bit by talking. When I talk about millennial, why do I, what do I mean? So as a millennial, uh, <laughs> kind of under, kind of paint a picture, getting out of college uh, at uh, a time of uh, depression, there's been this kind of weird phenomenon that a lot of experts can agree, like this prolonged adulthood. Uh, us millennials, we're waiting longer to get married. We're waiting longer to buy houses. We're waiting longer to have kids. We're waiting. Now, why is that? Well, it's because uh, the millennial generation has more debt from college than any other generation before with uh, prices tripling, uh, which tuition prices tripling since 1980. Um, you have uh, a lot of people moving back within their parents because also because we're in an econ- – at the time at least, uh, anywhere from 2009, 2000, even up to 2015, you've got all these people who are coming out of college uh, and the job market's just tough. The unemployment rate – the year after this film uh, came out, 2011, unemployment for 18 to 24-year-olds was 16%. That's twice as high as the God national damn. average. damn. Was yeah. it really? Yes. Wow. Yes. So, uh, therefore, we don't have, first off, where, where you see this generation of people coming out with massive debt from school loans, more debt than any other ger- generation before from school, who can't get jobs because there's just not a fru- uh, fruitful job market. In the Western world, you have a post-consumer economy uh, that is not, there, there are not... Uh, Jobs that uh, are really going to pay the bills on a an, on anything less than a post secondary education. No, no, exactly. For the uh, first time in the history of this part of the world. No, no, exactly. Well, a, a call a bachelor's degree has never been worth less because everyone's got one. Uh, everyone's got a bachelor's degree. So, but if you don't have one, if you don't have one, you're, you're just you're out of luck. If you do have one, though, there's everyone's got one, so there's a lot more competition. So it doesn't always set you aside. Now you have to, now you have to have like uh, three of our three of our presenters around the table have to have a master's degree to set yourself up. Congratulations, uh, well, to uh, band. bows. Well, and even as late as uh, the early half of Generation X, I mean, there were still factory union factory jobs that yep. uh, you go. Your dad and his dad both worked at the the Ford plant. Uh, you got out of high school, and uh, they got you a job at the Ford plant. You made good money. You worked long, hard hours, but you made, you know, fifty to sixty thousand dollars a year. I mean, that's not that's not an in, uh, that's not an amount of money to scoff at by any means. Yeah, my mom is a very early Gen Xer slash late baby boomer, and she uh, actually worked in factories over the summer. Um, you know, in graduate school and undergrad, um, sewing on jean pockets at a giant clothing factory, um, where her grandmother, my great grandmother, got her a job. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's really fascinating how that has just evaporated from the American consciousness and you know employment. Yeah, and you, and, you, well, and you go, instead of working at a factory that pays handsomely for a summer job, you go work at Starbucks or you work at a GameStop or whatever. You know, jobs don't pay quite that kind of bonus. Service jobs. And, and not to mention those, not only is it just enough to get by, like you can't pay off your loans with that money. So where does that come into this extended adulthood? Uh, you're looking at also a generation who was raised in an economic boom in the 80s and 90s when the economy was on the, on the bounce back, when consumerism was an all-time high because we were all being, you have comic books, you have action figures, cartoons. There was, a, an, a, at least during the 90s, there was a, 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 a point in time where the economy was great. And we were raised with this very consumeristic mentality. So we're, we're moving back in with our parents. Well, especially with, with millennials our age, you're, you're not raised by Gen Xers, you're raised by baby boomers. Yes, correct. So you're moving back in with your parents, the things you tend to value, you, you don't have enough money to, to move out on your own, be financially independent, therefore you're not going to get married until you're later. It, it trickles down. Now I want to set the, I'm, I'm using all this to set the stage because I feel like Scott Pilgrim is a movie that is a product of this way of living where you have Scott Pilgrim, a guy who's living with his roommate, who's essentially living off of his roommate, by the way. I don't think it's... They kind of imply he's a mooch. Yeah, well, he's unemployed uh, for an indeterminate amount of time. Exactly. Uh, so in, in the film, you see that the, the film is, is 
trying to paint a picture of how does one find self-worth when he doesn't have a job, when he's a mooch. In the millennial era, he plays video games, he likes to go to arcades, he dates a lot of girls, uh, you know, and really is fascinated in, 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 with pop, this, all this pop culture, but ultimately not an independent being. Now, his whole journey in the film, though, is to win the heart of Ramona Flowers. And it's only at the end of the film, in which, in which point uh, he's, you know, wins her love that he actually finds independence, which doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. You see him fight all these people only to learn that he needs self-respect, that to, to gain independence, even when you're a broke person, even when you're a broke millennial living with your parents, you can still find, find self-fulfillment and self-respect. Verse, but I, I find it's very interesting because despite finding self-respect, the film has the, has the tagline there where it implies that the only way he can have real self-respect is if he gets the girl, gets Ramona Flowers. Uh, so I found that when I, when I was talking about my, my problems with the film, I, I, have, I see this beautiful coming-of-age tale about a boy learning how to respect himself and learning that he is at, at, at a point where he's going to try to go out and get a self-respecting job. He's going to go out and try to put himself out there. That was the whole point when he's fighting the G-Man. He's like, oh, I thought I was fighting for you, but really I should have been fighting for me because I can't provide for you until I can provide for me. However, despite doing that, the film's like, yeah, but f- f- to get the happy ending, to actually have that self-fulfillment, you have to you, – you still need the love of Ramona Flowers. You still need the girl to find the self-fulfillment um, despite being a broke millennial. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Caleb Masters. Thanks for uh, kind of breaking down some of the material circumstances under which the cadult phenomenon takes place. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what analysis do you bring? I want to pick up a little bit uh, of what Caleb was talking about uh, I'm less interested in the framing of uh, millennials uh, that this film has because it does kind of have an ambiguous time frame. I mean, all the tech we see is very old. Um, You know, the cell phones are older. uh, The video games are older. Uh, It it is kind of interesting, and I I love that choice by the filmmakers, uh, Edgar Wright and co., uh, to go ahead and keep things a little ambiguous, keep them a a little timeless. Uh, Because I think more than about specifically millennials, I think this film has some really interesting uh, and mature things to say about love. Uh, Now, it definitely has some heteronormative things to say about love because it's a Hollywood film. Um, The the comic series has a a vast, nuanced uh, set of supporting characters. We get some of those here in the film, but they have a lot more to do in the comics, and they have their own... uh, relationship struggles that they have to deal with, and I think that's part of what makes this story so interesting. Uh, But what makes the film itself so interesting is, as Caleb said, is the ultimate thing is self-respect. And it's not just uh, respecting himself, but it's also a self-awareness that Scott has lacked throughout the entire film. Um, He is uh, a completely and utterly unaware person, Um, (laughs) which is really funny to me. Um, You talked about his interest in pop culture. Really, he doesn't have that much of an interest. Everyone around him does. He seems kind of clueless about everything uh, in his life. I don't know if I totally agree with that because he makes a lot of pop culture references. Obviously, everyone he doesn't. I don't think he specializes in anything, unlike just about everyone else around him. But I, that's that's my, I guess what I, what I'm getting at is there, there's a certain amount of cluelessness to his uh, just his life, uh, both in you know his lack of employment, uh, but really more specifically, what I'm more interested in is his lack of self awareness and what he does to other people. Uh, he he talks a lot about uh, his relationship. Uh, his relationship with Kim comes up a lot. And he's like, yeah, we're fine. It's not fine. Clearly, Kim's very mad at him. Uh, she is still holding a grudge because apparently it was a pretty nasty relationship. Um, he doesn't really take any responsibility for uh, dating this 17-year-old who has never dated anyone before. Uh, and, you know, that's a pretty big responsibility uh, that he's taken on. He's going to have a formative impact on this person's uh, ideas of relationships going forward in her life. Uh, it has takes no responsibility for it. He's kind of a schmuck. No, he is a, he is a schmuck. He, That's the a, point. Yeah, and his interest in Ramona Flowers is not an interest in her as a person. It's an interest in her as an idea. This one girl with hair like this, uh, who is she? Who is this mystery dream woman? And he doesn't really get to know her at all until much later in the film. And when he gets to know her, it gets hard and it gets scary and he gives up. The turning point for him is not just the realization of, you know, I have to do this for me. It's also the realization of I have to take personal ownership 
for my mistakes, for the way that I have treated people, for the way I have taken advantage of my romantic relationships, but also my friendships. He's taken advantage of Wallace's generosity. He's taken advantage of... Stephen wants nothing more than for their band to make it, um, and he is constantly uh, sabotaging both himself and the band. Um, and it's driving Stephen insane. He is belittles young Neil at every turn. Uh, and at this moment, when he goes back after he gets killed and uh, uses his one-up to uh, re-enter the Chaos Theater, uh, he's like, hey, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You rock. I'm sorry. You rock. I suck. Uh, but I'm do- And I'm doing this for me. Uh, and I-, I think that's really beautiful. I think... Um, you know, Brian Lee O'Malley's uh, graphic novels are also really nuanced in, in their treatment of uh, interpersonal relationships. Uh, and I think Edgar Wright brings a lot of that to his screenplay uh, by saying, at the end of the day, you cannot be an adequate uh, partner in a relationship unless you have a certain amount of self-awareness about the baggage that you are bringing um, and about the way that you behave and the way that you treat people. And you have to come to terms with, you know, not everything's going to be okay at the end of the day. You know, Kim is only slightly um, resolved, I think. Uh, Knives is slightly more resolved. She's like, hey, man, uh, I'm too cool for you, so it's fine. There is a certain amount left hanging, uh, I think. And I I actually like that about the film. Uh, It it isn't really a happy ending. It is kind of a, a melancholy ending where he says, I don't really know what I'm doing either, uh, and may, I guess we'll figure it out together. Um, and the realization that he doesn't know what he's doing, uh, I think, is really what's beautiful. And uh, the choice that him and Ramona make to figure it out together, I, I think, is really lovely. And I think is uh, is nuanced and is mature in, in this depiction of, no, love is not going to fix everything. Uh, if anything, it's going to make everything a lot harder. Um, but the, the realization that's going to make it harder is... Uh, I think, lends to the maturity of this film. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much for that. Mr. Dalton Stewart, Ms. Alexander Bohannon, what analysis do you bring? Well, uh, first of all, before I get into what I specifically wanted to talk about, um, I just wanted to thank uh, Dalton for that reading of the film. I really uh, enjoyed that. And thank you. my biggest... I really... I like this movie. I like the concept of this movie. And I was really... I was kind of harsh in in my initial review. Um, And I think Dalton reminded me about some of the cool and interesting things this movie does, because some things it it's hard for me um, certainly as a millennial woman uh, to kind of get past Scott being such an enormous douchebag. He's awful. Um, And I totally, whenever you were talking about uh, Dalton, you were talking about having a seven, a 17 year old with an older relationship. It like totally impacts your formative experiences. I was that 17 year old dating a 22 year old in college, you know, and and I experienced that, you know, something coloring the rest of your, how you are treated in relationships for the rest of, you know, foreseeable future without deep introspection. So I do understand that a lot. Um, it's a little hard for me to get past Scott being so terrible um, a lot of for a lot of the movie. And um, thank you for reminding me he ends up not being as terrible at the end. So that, that helped uh, sweeten my uh, view of this picture. But I'm not specifically going to talk about that at all. Today we're going to talk uh, about stylistic formalism as applied to Scott Pilgrim. Uh, this picture, directed by Edgar Wright, uh, is going to be... I'm going to talk about this movie... Um, with the specific theory of the purpose of style that was created by Oscar-winning director uh, Sidney Lumet in his book, Making Movies. I was just going to say Lumet's so cash. Yes, he is. Um, One of the most interesting things this movie does um, in Scott Pilgrim is the visual language and style of how Wright tells this story. And I think it deserves some unpacking as to tell as to why Wright effectively tells the story with the style. Um, for, for the starters, style defined by Lumet is how you tell a particular story. First, Lumet, in describing what, what is style, he argues against a theory of auteurism. Auteurism, as a reminder, is the theory that film reflects the director's personal creative vision as if they were the primary auteur, the French word for author. Uh, personally, in my own theoretical readings, I give a lot of weight to auteurism. I believe in it most of the time, but Lumet's conceptualization of style discounts it heavily, and I'd wish to apply this parcel of theories to Scott Pilgrim. It's kind of an interesting um, whenever you have like two contentious viewpoints in, in your brain, like holding them together in the same time. Um, I want to 
even though I generally agree with altruism, I think that Lumet's arguments arguments for style is more applicable in this sense. His main argument is that many different peoples come together to make a film, which is probably the most, the best argument against auteurism, because, you know, if you say that the director is the primary auteur, um, that totally discounts the writer and the DP and the cinematographers and, you know, everyone else on, on this set. His secondary argument against auteurism is that individuals, people argue as auteurs with a clear quote style are actually directors who are remaking the same movie over and over again. Um, I'd be interested to know uh, what you all think at this at the table, because his primary example of this domain is Alfred Hitchcock. This is a quote from making movies. One of the reasons that Hitchcock was so deservedly adored was that his personal style was strongly felt in every picture, but it's important to realize why he essentially made the same picture over and over again. I mean, yeah, that, I mean, I, I, I get what Lament is saying there right? and sort of trying to say, okay, he's making the same thing, but that is exactly what auteurism is about. It's about the sort of uh, stylistic mark that marks the, the oeuvre of a single director. Hey, right. did you make yeah. Dog Day Afternoon? <laughs> Give Sidney Lament the benefit of the doubt for a second. Well, I think the it's not just, if you go on to read the rest of this, I mean, that was a, a one single quote. If you go on to read the rest of what he is saying about Hitchcock in this particular thing, he says that it's not just, uh, I feel like I'm splitting hairs that, here about auteurism and style, but he says that it's not just that Hitchcock is um, being an auteur because his way of depicting things carries over. It's because it's the same movie and he hires all of the same people and he's remaking the same concepts of these. This is all from Lumet. Um, like these kind of like, uh, comedic melodramas, but he's doing it over and over again. I, I'm going to have to call shenanigans. I mean, you, you know, I mean, yes, he made um, dog day afternoon. That's fine. Dalton, but he didn't make <laughs> vertigo or psycho or a window. And uh, yeah, all, instead he made uh, Twelve Angry Men and Before is, the Devil Knows You're Dead, which are fine movies, but they're not the they're, they're not on the level. They're, they're, they're not the, Hitchcock movies, Dalton. That's what he's saying. They're not on the level. I'm, uh, and, and uh, but that that being said, uh, Hitchcock. I mean, there's definitely a similarity, and the fr- the fact of the matter is, Lumet's got a similarity between his films as well. And uh, what auteurism is about, (laughs) he absolutely does. And he's not making exactly the same picture over and over again, but he does have the same preoccupations. Auteurism's helpful and it's handy. But that being said, and I think to Lamette's point that's going to be correct here in just a little bit, is style is is normative in in ways and is is very important to think about as well. Yeah. So that's kind of... The argument that Lumet is making, regardless of what you think of how Alfred Hitchcock, which I feel to have touched, uh, Lumet touched a nerve in, in Dustin, I think. <laughs> um, Correct, he did. Yeah, so, in, but in the concept of the Cornetto trilogy, I would, I would argue that Wright is kind of remaking the same concept. You have, you have, you know, man, you have this man and his, you know, BFF and maybe the comedic roles shift between the two of them. Um, and whoever is the lead shifts between the two of them, but then they go on, they have this inciting incident and it's like, things aren't as they seem. We have zombies. We have townspeople killing everybody. We have blue people filled with blue goo that are like actually robot, uh, alien things, you know? And, And I think that, could be applied by that Hitchcock Hitchcock quote. Lumet's second point about style is talks more about um, the specificity of style and and the universality of style. He says that overtly specific stylistic choices in in a film can lead to having more universal appeal as opposed to less. He gave this example about um, trying to make a movie that had a large Jewish population within it and that he got all of the inf- he got all this information back from his uh, set directors and everyone and he saw that they were trying to really Hollywoodize this movie um, and he said, no, this isn't going to have the same appeal as if it were legitimately about, um, you know, Jewish peoples and it has like these Jewish cultural markers. 
Uh, this movie, while designed for gamers and your stereotypical nerds, has overarching themes that can appeal to more than those groups. The power of first love and loss, as discussed by our friend uh, Dalton Stewart over there. Um, the power of, you know, being a, a young adult and trying to find your way, way as discussed by our friend uh, Caleb Masters over here. Um how exes can interact in your life and how discovering self-respect um, is very important in, in your transcendence and becoming a more, becoming a more round, well-rounded human being. One problem that has been talk told to me about Scott Pilgrim though, is that its style is too specific. Mm-hmm. Even though Lumet says that um, the more specific your style is in a, in appealing to certain groups, the more universal the themes are. Um, some have argued like Roger Ebert and other critics who saw this movie and didn't like it, um, argued that the style actually detracted from what the movie was trying to say. And that's one thing that's really interesting, uh, about, uh, Lumet's theory of style is that I think that because you get to this question of, can you have a style that's that can exclude so many people that people are, actually excluded instead of included but i think this maybe is a reaction to hollywood um because hollywood thinks you know inclusion and universality is about generalization and making kind of wishy-washy movies that we're trying to appeal to so many different groups and so many different people and all these focused things hitting all these target demos that we have like a wish-wash of themes i would say that um batman versus superman's one that's probably one of that picture's uh, biggest problems. It's trying to appeal to so many people and, and it doesn't succeed on any of those fronts. And I'd say that's also an, uh, an issue that has plagued the Mar- Marvel cinematic universe until about civil war is that it tries to appeal to so many people and trying to bring in all these people that maybe aren't caught up on the, the Macu to into the fold and keep them aware. Um, and to the the detriment of itself. So I think that films like this, uh, films that have such a crisp and clear style, dis- despite maybe uh, driving some people out, even though that's not you know the the director's intention or um, Lumet's intention, um, I think that they're they're necessary as a check on popular Hollywood cinema because we don't get movies like this. Excellent, excellent. I want to I want to tag on to that. I I'm going to alter my analysis just a little bit. I think in, in view of this, uh, because I, I I think what I have brought for today may speak to some of these issues. Um, first of all, we need to talk a little bit about the modernity thesis, which um, Ben Singer is probably the most uh, recent and well-known writer. Uh, Miriam Hansen has done some writing on this, and of course this all way goes back to uh, the Frankfurt School, uh, Theodore Adorno and Habermas and uh, Bloch, and uh, a little bit Benjamin, but less so, um, with their, their writings uh, right after World War II. And the modernity thesis basically suggests that um, cinema itself is uh, a consequence of modernity. That with the with the process of modernization, cinema uh, came to the fore. You can see a lot of modernization just in the way cinema is put together, the rationalization of labor, the the sort of factory stylings of how it's put together. Um, also, there's this idea that there is a, a fragmentation in life. You know, between uh, your work life and your home life, and perhaps you know your third place. And with the, with the use of the editing and the, the use of the cut, um, you sort of see a, a representation of that sort of thing. And finally, um, the most controversial aspect of the modernity thesis is um, the sort of fractured understanding of the world and of perception, and that uh, cinema provides a new avenue for perception. That is the modernity thesis. Now, this film, I would suggest, is uh, perhaps part of uh, a newly burgeoning bit of scholarship called the post-modernity thesis. Uh, I cite uh, one of my colleagues at Oklahoma State, Vincent Landino, who's doing some work with this right now. And so I'm cribbing some of his work. Uh, and it's this idea that as society and culture and technology have changed, uh, most specifically in the idea of a virtual self, uh, living and existing as a, uh, a virtual human being, as a person, that this film so captures that style of video games and of comic books and of a self that's, that's more of an avatar uh, of your actual self. Because we all know Michael Sarah. Cannot throw down. 
We all know the man cannot box. He, I mean, there is no kung fu in this man whatsoever. But his virtual self is something of a kung fu master and therefore is able to really, really throw down with, you know, seven evil X's. And it is capturing some of that mode of existence um, that is part of our, our new postmodern circumstance in which we find ourselves. And this film is a capturing of that. Now, the problem with this film with some of the older reviewers and uh, folks who, who don't like it as much is because of uh, we were touching on this a little bit in Alex's analysis um, is because we now live in a world uh, where modernism was very much a, a, a real kind of natural transition uh, from uh, sort of the agricultural, uh, just industrial to post-industrial society. Um, but what we're living in now uh, in this sort of postmodern society is a society in which older generations are less able to function as guides and signposts for younger generations. Uh, the futurist and theologian Leonard Sweet talks about this idea that um, every generation prior to the postmodern generation was a generation of immigrants, that everyone else, uh, the, the preceding generation, your parents were the natives, and the natives taught you the customs, the culture, and the way to behave and how to make, it, make your way through and get along. And then what ends up happening with the postmodern shift is now the older generation find themselves be immigrants in their own culture. It is a culture they do not know how to navigate quite as well. It is a society in which they cannot negotiate the, the, the customs and the mores um, where you say things and they used to mean something, but now that means something very, very different. We've all had those embarrassing moments with Grandma uh, where she's talking about, you know, opened, uh, open-toed footwear in which uh, we called them sandals or flip-flops, but she still seems to keep calling them thongs and she has no idea why we all think it's funny. Uh, that sort of negotiation as change and transition. This film is also demonstrating that transition of a different mindset, of, 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 a, of a different sort of humanity, a postmodern humanity. And I think that's part of where uh, a, a critic like Roger Ebert would find their hang-up. Uh, because I think this film is thoroughly postmodern because it is about this sort of avatistic, um, you know, avatar style life. And uh, I, I find that bit of reading, you have to go backward and think about the modernity thesis and then begin to project forward because the post-modernity thesis is yet to be formulated. Vincent, I'm pulling for you, buddy, but um, I don't know uh, how we're going to figure that out just yet, but I think this film suggests a lot of that stuff going forward. So there you go, uh, dear listener, for some analysis uh, of the film Scott Pilgrim v. The World. Uh, we are very, very excited to be bringing this to you. Uh, before we move on, though, I'm going to take just a moment and hear a word from our sponsors. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talks. Here comes the money. This week, we want to thank Heath Huffman. And Daniel Stahl for pledging to support the Good Trash Media Network at Patreon.com. For the support, we are very humble and very grateful. It is through the donations of patrons like Heath and Daniel that we are able to produce the quality and quantity of content that we do. Because of the pledges of our wonderful patrons, we've been able to get business cards, upgrade equipment, purchase a camera for live streaming, and that is just the tip of the iceberg for 2016. We have so many surprises in store for you, dear listener. So again, to those who have pledged, thank you. Thank you so much. And if you're not sure about pledging uh, but want more information, then go to patreon.com forward slash GTM. That's patreon.com forward slash GTM. Or go to goodtrashmedia.com and click become a patron. Again, thank you so much. And back to the show. I think she smell my cologne. It's called brand new money. Make the major moves, man. Ain't a damn thing funny. Pimpin' hood rats to playboy bunnies. They see the. Thank you, thank you for all of your patronage. You can find all that stuff uh, at other places that we'll talk about here in just a little bit, but we must come to a point in our show right now where we must render a verdict. We'll put this film on the shelf or in the trash and then render our else's or our insteads. I go to you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What do you say, shelf or trash, else or instead? I had a feeling you were going to. You're maintaining a lot of eye contact with me. It's uh, mostly because of your beautiful, luxurious hair. Thank you for that. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say shelf this. I think it's a very interesting film. Uh, I think there's a lot going on. Uh, to pair with it, you should definitely check out Edgar Wright's Cornetto trilogy and his uh, 
TV series Spaced. I also think you should check out uh, another you know visually striking and inventive film that has a lot to say about human love, and that is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Ooh, great pick. Thank you. Great nice. pick. Uh, well, I think there's a lot of similarities there, both in terms of you know the magical realism and in terms of the the visuals on display and the multicolored ha- hair having love interest. Um, it's a great film. Um, it's my favorite Michel Gondry film uh, by a long shot. There are probably uh, dozens of other of really uh, emotionally complex love films that you could pair with this, but that was the one that most immediately came to mind for me. Excellent. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Ms. Alexander Bohannon, what are your selections? Sell for trash, else, or instead? Well, I definitely want to self this film, uh, Dustin's... Uh, Did I self instead of shelf? Uh, yes. I uh, could have. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I'm actually going to shelf this film. For other films that you could pair with it, um, you could do Wreck-It Ralph, the Disney uh, feature. I feel like those are... They're very spiritually aligned considering the amount of homages to video games. Um, in more celebrations, uh, positive celebrations of nerd culture, I would also recommend Galaxy Quest because that you just always always need that more in your life in terms of meta cinema i would say deadpool and then finally i would say uh pick up brian o'malley's other graphic novel offerings um one of which i've read recently is seconds um has a female protagonist and it has some really interesting stuff about the ramifications of um some magical realism and you know if you could get anything you wanted uh is that honestly the best thing for you it's got some really interesting stuff about love and theme themes we've already discussed so definitely check out seconds by o'malley thank you very much Ms. alexander bohannon mr caleb masters what do you say shelf or trash else or instead this is a definite shelf else uh well my else has already all been stolen i again cornetto trilogy is an absolute must if you haven't seen those wreck it ralph was also another uh, one of my uh, recommendations because uh just kind of looking at the kind of uh, kind of retrofitting like video games as a, as a style of storytelling that movie also does really really well and it's just adorable. I mean, come on. Um, but I'll, I'll go ahead and say this: uh, coming of age stories, any of them, all of them, the good ones, the perks of being Wallflower, Juno, Reality Bites, Spectacular Now. See all of them because uh, although this is a hyper real version of a coming of age story, I think it picks up on a lot of those themes. And lastly, I'm going to give uh, recommend listens because if you like uh, the video gamey soundtrack here, I want to recommend some of the artists because there are a lot of people doing some cool musical stuff out there. Go listen to the album Imposter Nostalgia from the the musician Big Giant Circles. Excellent. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Caleb Masters. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you say? Shelf for trash, else, or instead? Uh, yeah, I'd say put it on your shelf. I, I like it a lot. I think it uh, does a lot of really cool stuff, like everybody has said. And I'm going to second Alex's uh, else's because she hit the nail on the head. So, killing it. Cash money. There you go. There you go. You're wearing that new cologne, I think, Alex. It's called Brand New Money. <laughs> so uh, thank you very much for that um, I'm also going to say Shelf I think this movie's worth owning and worth seeing I like it a lot um, In terms of my analysis of the post-modernity Slash modernity thesis I think you ought to check out Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times Which is probably the uh, good introductory film Into the idea of the modernity th- thesis And then as you move your way forward Into something of a post-modernity thesis I am not going to suggest The Matrix Although The Matrix would be brilliant uh, For that idea But I'm going to say Pulp Fiction Because because it does one of the most important, um, uh, I guess, formalist aspects of postmodernity, which is pastiche. And also, there is a moment in which Jules says to Vincent, let's get into character. And I think it speaks very, very much to that same concept. And the camera just sort of like sits and waits on them to come back into the movie. It's a great moment. It is. It really is. Um, also, um, most interesting use of the term holy of holies I've ever heard in my life. But I move on. Uh, th- then it's I not w- even the same thing, man. Moving right ahead, though. Um, to see something really, really contemporary that does this, um, Hardcore Henry, mm. I think, is absolutely... Oh, did you catch up with that? Um, no, I listened to your episode and it was enough for me. Uh, oh. It's also a video game movie that's not a video game movie. Right. And so uh, there you go. Uh, for that, those are my selections. Dear listener, we'd love to hear yours, and then we can hear them via those magical means we all know as social media. Arthur Gordon, do you know where we can have a social media conversation with the dear listener? Uh, yeah, you can find us on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash good trash media. Head over there and hit that like button and uh, keep up with what we're doing. We're always uh, posting our episodes, articles, all that good stuff. Uh, you can find us on uh, goodtrashmedia.com. Go straight to the source and uh, see what we're doing over there and engage with us on the 
comment section on the pages over there and uh, tell us what you thought of Scott Pilgrim uh, versus the world. And as always, we very much cherish uh, your opinion and your support of us. And so head over to patreon.com forward slash GTM to see how you could uh, be a part of that. Excellent. Hey, Dalton, tell us about that other thing that happens in social media for good trash. Dear listener, we are in Lesbians with you. Uh, we hope you feel the same way. If you want to let us know, you can find us on Twitter at good underscore trash. Um, very much thanks goes to all of you uh, for all of that great analysis. Take a look at Scott Pilgrim's. Take a look at next week's film, which is Rounders, starring one Matt Damon. Uh, it's going to be a great show. Um, I know it because it's being cast from the future to the past. But um, more on that anon. Uh, we're very, very excited about seeing that. And uh, take a look at a movie. Take a look at anything and have a conversation because the movies are so much more than just 90 minutes and a bucket of popcorn. It's about the conversation. And until then, we'll see you all next time. The Good Trash Genre Cast is produced and edited by Arthur Gordon. Direction by Dustin Sells. Social media by Alexandro Bohannon, Caleb Masters, and Dalton Stewart. Our intro and outro is Night Call by Kavinsky and Lovefox. We are also proud to feature music from Deer Tick this week on the program. For more information on this episode of the Good Trash Genre Cast, as well as the rest of the Good Trash Media family, please visit goodtrashmedia.com. Arthur, take that out, please. It's just dates. Take it's, it out, Arthur. It's it's fine. Take it out.